Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because God on it, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. <clears throat> then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Halibia. <clears throat> where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedalia, Bedalium, <clears throat> and Oxenstone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the land of the third, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, <clears throat> which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed.
Very good morning and greetings to all of you in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, I have an inclination here to spend a lot of time with introductory uh, background contextual comments. I will try to refrain myself from too much of that, though I do feel compelled uh, to address one, and that is a major, I think, American kind of cultural event of this past week that I'm sure many of you are aware of was the public debate of a scientist and a believer, uh, the Nye-Ham debate that was uh, watched by evidently at least a million people and possibly well more, may never know exactly how many paid attention to that debate. And I'm just curious, how many of you uh, saw some of it at least? Okay, yeah. significant number. <clears throat> uh, at the risk of treading into minefields, uh, I would like to make just a few comments. And, and one of them, I think, is, has become quite apparent through uh, what's being posted on social media in regards to the debate, how people are summing up and summarizing uh, the way the debate unfolded. And suffice it to say that, in, in my opinion, what it did was just deeply expose a, a rift of worldviews. And I think that rift particularly was exposed in the field of epistemology, uh, how we know what we know. And I know that some of you, your eyes will glaze over by just even thinking about how you might know how you know. Uh, and it is a, a very interesting, fascinating discipline, uh, one that I, I care about rather deeply and explore rather shallowly. But using that as an illustration, what we have is one person in the debate saying, I know what I know through the observations I make about the natural ordered world. So using scientific process, I form a basic, basic theory, I test that hypothesis, I observe how the world interacts in its relationships, and I discover new and important things. And I, I want you to know, I believe that is a very valid way of knowing. Now, if that's the only way we are to know, then what we have to do is close this book and resort strictly to what we might call the sciences, broadly speaking. And by sciences, I would say both the hard and soft sciences, both the natural sciences and the social sciences. So we're left with knowing only by what we're able to observe in the world. The material world, its actions, its interactions, relationships, and human behaviors and how we can catalog those. And you had one man present who was basically saying that. That's the scope of our knowledge. That's how we know. 
you had another man who was saying, well, we've got a book. And kept coming back, we've got a book. Well, to the other guy, so what? Okay, here today we're gathered and we're going to be opening this book under the basic assumption that there is a transcendent one who has brought into existence what we now see. He's done it in an orderly sort of way so that we can observe and learn helpful things. And so that even some of the greatest scientists in the world, in their study of the sciences, say it's absolutely amazing what we discover. So even Francis Collins, who is kind of the father of DNA, of the discovery of DNA, led a team of over 2,000 scientists and saw for the first time that genetic coding in the human DNA says, I, I have no other response other than to worship the one who designed that. And we're saying that that, that infinite being, that created one, we're saying he's spoken. And we're saying this book contains what he has spoken to us. Now, let me, let me just back up and say there are specific and legitimate scientific processes that we can employ to assess whether or not we're being fools for placing that kind of credibility in this book. We're not engaging in those conversations this morning. Okay, we're assuming them. We're not saying this is strictly faith, faith apart from reason. We're saying there are well-reasoned pathways that lead us to faith being a reasonable response that God has spoken and he's given us a message. And it's not, it's not foolish, it's reasonable. But we still, it doesn't take us all the way. Eventually, we, we trust God with it. And we come today in faith that God has spoken, and we're going to open it up, and we're going to read what he has to say, and we're going to say, on the topics that Scripture addresses, the, the revelation, the knowledge we receive from that is just as valid as a well-documented scientific discovery. So a, a Christian who believes in God and trusts Scripture can also go on, as Francis Schaeffer said, a free discovery of the created world without fear of falling off the edge of the planet. And so Christians should be among the most avid, ardent explorers of the natural world alive in the universe today. Okay, it's not always the case. Christians have been paranoid and schizophrenic and afraid of the sciences and all those kinds of things. Okay, that's a problem. And, and Schaefer concludes that line by saying, we would see a level of freedom in the Christian world that has not always been seen. And I think that's still true.
But today, we're looking at Revelation. So if you were to go and take the questions about the roles of men and women in social orders, if you were to take those questions into most of our universities today, into the field of the social sciences, psychology, sociology, anthropology, you're going to arrive at a very different set of answers. Now, I'm going to say I think they can be well reconciled when, in fact, they're science and not just pure hypothesis. But we're going to Revelation, and we're asking the questions in this fourth of our series on biblical leadership about the roles of men and women in leadership, particularly today in the church. It has implications for the larger world. It has implications for other Christian institutions and organizations, for the business place, for the home. Uh, Brother James will be addressing marriage specifically next Sunday in his study on 1 Peter. But today we're talking primarily about the church. And what we know is that God has spoken in his word quite clearly about how his church, how his body is to be ordered. So in, this, in the first of this series, our Brother Linford addressed the nature of leadership and that it is a responsibility that all people have. There are simply different roles and responsibilities and different spheres of influence and leadership. We look then at the posture of Christians in this task of leadership modeled by the person of Jesus, and it's called servant leadership. Leadership must be willing to absorb the weight, burden, and suffering and responsibility and serve those they are called to serve for the sake of their growth and development and the honor and glory of Christ. And then Brother Linford again in the third sermon addressed the purpose and responsibility of leadership in the church, how God gifts his people, gives gifts to those living together in community so that community can grow, prosper, and flourish. And today now the roles of men and women in leadership. Again, emphasis on the local church, and then we'll be looking at the roles of elders and deacons next, followed by the qualifications, biblical qualifications for those elders and deacons, a, an assessment of how the church might process its selection of people for those offices, and finally concluding with a specific vision for Calvary Mennonite Fellowship and leadership going forward. We're going to be looking specifically at three passages today, and I invite you to open your Bibles, for starters, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. And we're, we're breaking in... And I, one of my frustrations with this sermon has been three different texts... I just can't deal with the context of each of the texts very well. But here Paul is addressing a church that is falling back into uh, Judaism and a more legal structured view of salvation and faith. And so he's not really talking about leadership as such, but he's addressing a fundamental biblical principle of equality. And he uses three different groups of people three different kind of uh, social segments to illustrate that. So Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. 
And we're going to carry that principle forward and apply it into the context or as a background or foundational principle for leadership. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want to note here the equal value of men and women, male and female. <clears throat> and he says specifically in two contrasting kind of categories, the first two are contrasted, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. In these two categories, there were clear superiors and inferiors. So the Jew, as regards revelation of God, hearing a message from God, was clearly ahead of their times, as opposed to the Greek, who was left only with naturalistic forms of discovery. So God had spoken, and the Jews, as a chosen people of God, were well ahead in many, many areas because God had disclosed to them some of the mystery of the universe and the world in which they lived. He had told them how to order their societies. And so the Jews really had a problem with Gentiles coming into the church on an equal footing. Because he said, look, we've got this glorious history. We've been privileged people. And they're coming in too? The dogs? You're going to let them in the sanctuary? And Paul says, that is an Old Testament view of law. It does not accurately reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this new covenant people of God, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, you all come, uh, as is preached so many times, to the foot of the cross. And there the ground is level. And when you get there and surrender to the person of Jesus Christ as someone in need of his salvation, you are no longer Jew or Gentile. You're a human being in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And when you are received in Christ, you are one and the same in this new society. So the old social distinction when it comes to the church is over. Now, when you walk out the door of the assembly and you go into the business place, yeah, you're a Jew. And yes, you're a Gentile. And there's a sense even in the church, you're a Jew and you're a Gentile. What he's saying is, that is of no account. It is not valid for distinction or giving priority. You are equal, Jew and Gentile. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in the community of faith. There are none who are privileged above another. Okay, the second group is slave or free man. So you have... A clear social structure here, a, a clear social institution of slavery where there are a certain segment of the population that answers without any level of freedom at all to another human being. And that person in authority can pretty well say to the slave whatever they want them to do, and their obligation is to do it. They are held in bondage by another human being. 
And the Apostle Paul says, while that is a real institution in the Roman world, and he's not, he's not obliterating it by this statement. In fact, it's in other epistles. He says to them, slaves, be subject to your masters. He's not calling for a revolution. Okay, and that's caused a lot of people trouble. The message of Christianity brought social change on those issues. But Paul didn't call the slaves to revolt. He said, you be in submission. So this institution is not destroyed by this statement. This social order is not destroyed by this statement. But he says, when a slave kneels down at the foot of the cross, and a master kneels down at the foot of the cross, and they become a part of this new community of faith, the church, they're equal. No matter what the social standing is. Okay, and today, in our more free society, we might say, you have a multimillionaire who is a very influential person walks in, and a homeless man walks in with no assets whatsoever, no educational opportunities, and they bow down at the foot of the cross, and they are, through the baptism into Christ, brought into the family of God, they are equal. There is no distinction. Okay, and we don't always automatically get that right. This message is crystal clear. Now, the next statement is not one of contrast, but one of comparison. So he says, male and female. So there's already a level of equality that's assumed. Both human beings, different gender. In Christ, there is no distinction when it comes to value, ability, gifting, intellect, between male and female. A man comes to the cross, a woman comes to the cross. They are baptized into Christ. They come into the body of Christ. There is no distinction between man and woman when it comes to sonship, when it comes to being received, when it comes to being a legitimate part of the family of God. No distinction. So those old social categories, and I would say ongoing current social categories, should not diminish the reality that in the church there is an equality. And that equality is different than sameness. Okay, very different than sameness. We don't come out the other side of our conversion as some common generic humanity where everybody's exactly alike. Okay, there are Jews and Greeks. There are Africans and Asians and Europeans and go on down the list. That's who they are. But there's an equality among those. There are people of high social standing with many, many people under their authority who gather in the sanctuary of God's people there are people who come in who are proverbially at the bottom of the totem pole. There is an equality in the body of Christ. Not a sameness, an equality. An equality of value. Okay, and this one, this one cuts both ways. And right now in our culture, I think it's, it's kind of popular uh, to scoff at and scorn those who have much. There are times in society when the people who have nothing are scoffed and scorned and ridiculed and sidelined. It ebbs and flows. Both are wrong. 
Both are wrong. Now, how about men and women? Same issue. In the body of Christ, it doesn't mean we are now some kind of third gender. It means that we come into Christ the same way, we are baptized into Christ the same way, and when we gather, we are equal in sonship, equal in value before God. Doesn't mean we're the same, okay? And I thank God for that, and you should too. We're not angels. We're men and women. We're human beings. The, those social dynamics still existed. And I think, I think the punchline here is, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Okay, that was a huge stretch for the Galatians. And just this morning in the children's assembly, telling the story of the blind man who was healed by Jesus, he's in conversation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, we're the sons of Abraham. This Jesus, we don't know who he is. You can claim to be his disciple. You're one of his disciples? Well, I, we don't know who he is. The blind man says to him, well, that's really silly. Because I was blind. He touched my eyes. I now see. That's the kind of thing God does. And you say you don't know who he is. Wow, that's strange. I said, oh, we're Abraham's seed. Jesus is saying, anybody who comes to Christ baptized into Christ, all Abraham's seed. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, all Abraham's seed. You're one family. One social structure. Now, we will not turn to any of these references, but referencing Brother Linford's message from last Sunday, where he talked about the gifts that are given to the people of the church the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he referenced a specific list from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which are probably more the leadership gifts. There are other lists in Romans, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. In a nutshell, the scripture teaches us that when God's people gather together in faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is present and he equips those people with particular gifts so that the body that's assembled can be served can grow up to become more mature in Christ. He doesn't say that he gives the gift of prophecy to men and he gives the gift of mercy to women. No, he says he gives the gifts as he chooses. There is no apparent distinction made between men and women as to how these gifts are distributed. No apparent distinction. And I think if you read the New Testament, there is no case to be made that some gifts are given only to men and some gifts given only to women. It just does not work that way. These gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to the people as he chooses to give them. So no apparent distinction between men and women. Now, we're going to make a leap here for the sake of time, but... I think it's consistent with the message of Scripture and in this way. Men and women are alike are given these gifts. That includes the gift of prophecy. It includes the gifts of administration. It includes the gifts of teaching. It includes the gifts of pastoring. 
men and women are alike responsible to exercise their gifts for, and I think it's the language of Corinthians, the common good. The gifts are not to be utilized for self-glory, for self-promotion, but if you're given the gift of prophecy, of administrations, of teaching, you are responsible. That gift is given to you. It's not really yours, but you're responsible to manage it. You're responsible to invest it. And how are you to do that? You're to do it for the well-being of the community of faith. Now, common good seems to be a very popular modern term. Uh, it's also in the Bible. Okay, For the common good. And this includes what we call sometimes the leadership gifts. Now, a slightly broader deduction. The church is best served and God is most glorified when all are investing their gifts for the common good. So if you, you have been gifted, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift. He's not given it to you to set you on a totem pole, to put you in a public place for the people to say, wow, look at the gift he's got. That's not the purpose for it. The gift is given so that you can go to work and nurture the well-being of the body of Christ. And when everyone is doing that with what God has given them to the measure he has given it to them, and they are cultivating it and developing it and growing it for the honor and glory of God and the advance and well-being of his people, that's when God is most glorified. God is not glorified by you having a gift and ability and in fear burying it in the ground. God is not glorified. God is not glorified when you have a gift and an ability and you're afraid of what people will think because it's not as great, as glorious, as wonderful, as spectacular as somebody else's is. God is most glorified when all are investing actively for the common good with the gifts God has given them. And just to illustrate the broad scope of this, uh, Acts 18.24, <coughs> we have a very skilled teacher, Apollos, his name, comes to Ephesus. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila obviously come to the synagogue, and they hear this traveling rabbi, uh, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, they hear him teaching. This is a gifted orator. But he's not gotten the latest word. Okay? He has the baptism of John. He doesn't even know what took place at Pentecost. Okay? And I think they know the order of worship in the synagogue. And so Priscilla doesn't stand up in the balcony and say, Hey, Apollo, stop, stop, you've got that wrong. Okay? And even Aquila is not disruptive. They thank God for the way this gifted man is explaining the truth of God. They realize he doesn't have it all right, and so they invite him afterwards. Hey, stop by. Let's have a cup of coffee. That's a stretch, of course. But somewhere they meet privately, and Aquila and Priscilla together, man and woman, instruct this gifted orator about the ways of God. And explain to him, explain to him Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, how the Gentiles have been invited. There's a man and a woman who are investing their gifts, but they're doing it in a godly and ordered kind of way for the common good. Okay, we also have 
uh, possibly the deacon, at least the man who was chosen to serve the church waiting on tables. He has four daughters who are prophets, and they're prophesying. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit given to women, and they're using them. So they had the, the ability to set forth the word of God and make known the will of God in the present situation. They were gifted with that ability. And the story basically indicates they did so regularly and faithfully. And then we have the Apostle Paul referencing uh, in both Romans and Philippians, women by name who were co-laborers with him in the gospel. God gifts men and women equally as he chooses for the same purpose. However, there are differing roles. There are some limitations placed on women in leadership roles in the church. And again, here we're going to make some fairly broad sweeping background statements. Hopefully we've laid a little bit of groundwork here. We'll do so more in the next several messages. But leadership in the church now is assumed to be elders, pastors, overseers. Okay, and those three words, three different Greek words, uh, sometimes translated elders, pastors, bishops, always refer to the same basic office. They're not distinct offices. They're not separate offices. They're the basic office of the leadership of the church. And hopefully we'll have time to defend that a bit more later. It is that group of leaders, frequently referred to as the elders, who are responsible for the teaching, caring, protecting ministry of the church. They're responsible to be doing it themselves, and they're responsible to see to it that it gets done for overseeing the task. Their responsibility is to see to the doctrine of the church, the teaching of the church, to be attuned to heresy that comes up and inform the church about heresy, guard the church against heresy, to teach the true doctrines of God and to alert to error that comes. That's the task of these elders of the church. They're responsible for the order of the church and for seeing the church grow, not just numerically, but spiritually and in maturity. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, and for the sake of time, I won't turn there, and we did address this text here just a couple of months ago in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. The context here, again, is the order of the church when it's assembled in worship. And so Paul is describing prophets speaking and everyone else weighing, assessing, thinking through what the prophet is speaking. So that's what you folks are to be doing. When someone is teaching, someone is speaking, proclaiming the truth of God, you're not to be sitting there just like a sponge and taking it in. You're to be thinking critically, assessing it. Is that actually what this passage says? You're to be active listeners. And then there's opportunity for you to say, that's a problem with that. Or I think it's this way. We need to have that kind of interaction. 
So the prophet speaks, the others weigh what is said, and that's not just other prophets, and it's not just other men. Women are also equally responsible to weigh, to sort what is said. Now that requires educated, intelligent, informed, spirit-gifted, spirit-guided women. We're not talking about the distinction in roles making women something less than. We're talking about some that are equal in gifting, equal in ability, equal in skill, equal in intellect, equal in those capacities. And so the scope of skill is no broader for women than it is for men. The scope is the same. The role is going to be slightly different. So the limitation in 1 Corinthians 14 comes, women are not exempted from weighing, but the order of the church is that they are not to publicly critique the prophetic word that is delivered. They are not to respond or inquire in a public way. And I think we referenced uh, when we studied this passage that the synagogue where most of these meetings took place initially, uh, the women did have certain galleries that they were in. And in Corinth, there's evidence that they would sometimes correct their husbands who were prophesying. Paul says, you don't do that. Wait till you get home. You be quiet. There has to be order. And so the women who are given the gift of prophecy are weighing it well, need to address that in submission and in private. And he says, this is consistent with all the churches of God. He's addressing Corinth, and he said, this is the way it is. Okay, so you have to stop that. You have to bring order back to the chaos here at Corinth. Now, I don't think this, this call to silence here in 1 Corinthians 14 does not restrict women from participating in group discussions if they do so with respect and submission. There is a healthy way in the Sunday school class of a, of a woman asking good questions, of giving her perspective. That's different than exercising authority in a public assembly or disrupting in a public assembly. And we don't have much time to talk about it. I think we referenced it earlier and would welcome your further input. But clearly, women are not to embarrass their prophet husbands by challenging his prophecies publicly. Uh, and uh, I, I've said this more away from home than I do here in my wife's presence, but when your wife is your intellectual superior, you do worry about that at times. <laughs> now, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to look at this quickly. And again, when we come to this little passage in 1 Timothy, we have to remember the context of 1 Timothy. And the context is the purpose of this book is an older pastor, church leader, apostle, writing to a young pastor who's a bit timid, instructing him how he is to manage the church of God. Okay, that's the context how he is himself to behave in the church of God as a pastor and how the church is to function in its assembly. 
And I'd like to read here quickly uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place, context I think being the church, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, we're not going to unpack this in the next five minutes. I want to point out a few key things. Notice in the opening verses of this passage, we notice a distinct posture for men. And this, this men is not a generic human men, it's males. Men are to pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. So the male posture in corporate assembly is acknowledging God, responding as a humble servant before the Lord. Pleading for God to exercise his authority on their lives to the church. Now, you can take this lifting up holy hands in, in multiple ways. It's clearly, uh, in this passage, for men in the assembly. And whether you're going to call for the actual posture, I think it's an appropriate posture for men to come before the Lord. Submitted to God and seeking his way. Finding his place in relation to God. Now, what's the posture of women? The posture of women says, look good, right? Yeah, well, women usually are concerned about looking good when they come to church, okay? And he's saying, so here's how you should pay attention to looking good. Don't pay inordinate attention to the way you dress and the way you comb your hair and everything, the little bells and whistles that you put on. Don't make that the primary, primary point of concern, but be sure that you're respectable in the way you dress, be sure that you have a quiet disposition, a submissive posture that is invested in godly deeds of service. That's the posture. Now you have men who come before God in the public assembly in this way, and you have women like that. What you have is a community that's ready to hear from God that's ready to honor God, and that's ready to go back out the door and sacrificially serve God in the way God wants to be served. And it's in that context that he then says, or gives the, the, the specific limitations. But I think those two introductory comments speak to a very fundamental difference between males and females, between men and women. And I, I, at some risk here, I'm going to make some rather strident comments, okay? And I think it's this. Men have a greater charge, biblically speaking, for exercising dominion and rule. Women have a greater charge for nurture and care. 
And whenever those fundamental responsibilities and natures get shifted, there is a significant loss that occurs in the complementary nature of male and female. This is not an issue of value. It's an, is an issue of created design. Both equally gifted. Both even given gifts for leadership. And we should thank God for them. But assigned different roles. We have here two restrictions then imposed on women in the positive and the negative. In the positive, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submission. And this term quietness <clears throat> can be translated in this, these kinds of ways. Undisturbing. Not creating a raucous scene. And in, in ancient Greek literature of this era, also implied things like to remain in your seat, to remain settled. So in the public assembly, women are to remain settled. You feel yourself getting agitated and you're ready to take the preacher out, just remain quiet, remain calm. You'll have your chance to talk to him. Okay. Probably clear it with your husband first, and then you can talk sometime if there's an issue. But in the public assembly, don't start disturbing the scene, remain in your seat, remain settled. That's a posture of submission. That doesn't mean that men shouldn't be like that, okay? The negative is two things. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach in the public assembly. Two, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over men in the church. This not permit to teach, this term teach in the New Testament and particularly Pauline literature most commonly describes the careful and authoritative transmission of biblical truth. It's what preachers are supposed to do. It's what prophets are supposed to do. It has nothing to do with gifting. It's only a limitation of where that gift is exercised. In fact, as the Apostle Paul to the letter to Titus says, women are to exercise those gifts with excellence in relation to other women, the older particularly to the younger, and to children. And they're to equip women to give shape to children's lives. And I'm suspicious some days that if we were to step back and actually be able to see the order of our created world, there's far more truth to the statement that hand the rocks the cradle rules the world is far truer than most of us will ever realize. I've read too many biographies recently of men and women who have led extraordinary lives for one simple reason. They had a mom that gave them something that was far more than what other moms were giving to their children. And I say here, with a high level of respect, women, you have the power to shape the next generation. Never, never, never underestimate it. Never, never undervalue your personal education as a teenager, as a young single, 
never see an advanced education as a waste if it's only invested in the children of the next generation. So to think that a woman should only stop at high school because all she's going to do is raise kids, that's a major problem in our culture. Because the tools, the resources, and the intellect you bring to your home will equip the next generation. And that includes fields, disciplines of theology. This teaching in public does not, I believe, include testimonies, reports, readings, <clears throat> and probably most forms of prayer. Though if someone does not want to be submissive and is not submissive, they can certainly preach sermons in prayers. Okay, and Paul would have a problem with that. But that issue is addressed not through silence, it's addressed through submission and quietness. Okay, not to exercise authority over men in the church. The authority, and, and this, the term authority here in 1 Timothy is used only here in, its, in the Greek word. Only places used in the New Testament, and it, it generally means one who does something himself as an originator, as an author. And so the people who originate the teaching and provide that publicly for the congregation are to be men. There are circles and places where women, women can originate the teaching and deliver it. It's not in the public assembly of the church. So that restriction is placed on women in this position of authority over men. They're not to be in those positions in the church. And the implication is she should refrain for the sake of the body, for the sake of the assembly. The restriction is not in place in the same way in a private setting. To speak a, a clear word of instruction based on scripture. But it must still be done with this submissive, respectful posture. And I quote here from the Danvers statement, with half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies that have heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neuroses, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of his fallen world. This limitation, this small limitation, should never restrict anyone, man or woman, just because you can't be a pastor, just because you can't be an elder, it should never restrict you from a fulfilling, effective ministry in a world of desperate need. And there are two reasons for the restriction. He said Adam was formed first, Eve was formed second. God created the world with an order. And then Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. And I think this points particularly to the kind of the general makeups, and you'll get other answers from sociology and anthropology, okay, and psychology. But they're also in denial on some issues. 
There are differences. Men are different. Women are different. Men do tend to bring a clarity and conciseness to theological ideas that equips them to better snuff out the nuances of heresy. And that's one of the key tasks of elders in the church. And so it's about created order, and it's also about it's also about this task of clarity. So in conclusion, there's an order in the family that's God-ordained. There's an order in the family of God that's God-ordained. Jesus chose 12 disciples who were men. But he also had a group of women who served him in a supportive role. The epistles set forth a model of church leadership that rests in male elders, pastors, overseers, with women active in all facets of ministry in the church, but restricted from playing the lead role of elder pastor or in any position in the church that has perceived spiritual authority over men. And so we conclude that men and women are equal in value, inheritance, and spiritual gifting. That there is a God-defined order where men are to be the first among equals in the home and in the church. That the role of preaching, teaching leadership in the corporate assembly should be done by the male elders of the church or by men who have been, been appointed by those elders. Four, that women are encouraged to use the gift of teaching wherever possible, as long as it does not place them in a position of spiritual authority over men. In nearly all other areas, women are encouraged to lead, to serve according to their gifts and opportunities in the world. Since the responsibility of overseeing the church has been given by God to the elders, elders will need to continually seek God's guidance regarding what specific roles women can fill in the church. They will be prayerfully considered based on the circumstances of the role and on the character and submissiveness of the woman involved. May God grant us wisdom so that the people of God can flourish with the gifts of God that God entrusts to his people. Let's pray. Lord, we desperately need your wisdom in our day so that your people can be actively invested and actively involved according to their gifts and callings. In that way, the church flourishes, the kingdom of heaven advances, and the glory of God is seen and made known in our day, in our world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.